So I am not, um, I am not well versed in this world, but uh, it seems like maybe a couple years ago, um, this thing called deconstruction began to be talked about a lot in the Christian world. A couple years ago, a couple months ago, I'm not entirely sure, but you've probably heard the term, the idea of deconstruction, uh, particularly in the Christian world, people talking about uh, their journey in deconstruction, and maybe you've heard that and been like, what are people talking about? I still kind of feel like, what are people talking about? But generally speaking, there is this, um, I think, spectrum of deconstruction that you might hear people talk about. Um, on the one hand, when someone says they've been going through a journey of deconstruction, they might be saying that they have completely abandoned their faith, that they believed in Jesus growing up as a kid, maybe they went to church, um, and, and they have now deconstructed their faith entirely. Someone could be saying that. Someone could be saying, I'm on a journey of deconstruction, and what that means is I used to believe that the Bible said this about God, but I've now kind of changed my view, and, and I believe it means this. And, and on that side of things, all of us in one sense could say we've deconstructed certain ideas and changed our mind as we study the Bible and, and things like that. Now, there are some popular YouTubers that surely some of us in this room have heard of, Rhett and Link. They have a couple YouTube channels, over 22 million subscribers, massive audience, um, probably particularly a younger audience, and apparently they created quite a stir um, with their videos they put out explaining their own deconstruction journey. Now, what you have to understand about Rhett and Link is they were, I believe, grew up in the church and, and definitely at some point became very committed uh, Christians. They were a part of, I think it was Campus Crusade for Christ, crew, massive uh, college ministry, ministry to college campuses and students. They, I think, were paid staff at one point. They would go on mission trips. They were uh, evangelists um, at heart and at the core, sharing their faith, bringing people to the faith. But then at some point, they began to have questions about their faith. They began to have doubts about their faith. Questions arose for them. Now, for about a day or two, this was a couple months ago, I let their videos about their deconstruction journey play in the background as I worked on other things, and one thing jumped out at me as I listened to why they have all but, if not completely abandoned, their faith in Jesus. Something jumped out at me uh, that they uh, both, if I recall, both of them said. They described the beginning of their journey of having doubts and questions about their faith, and they said that they would go to God in prayer about these things. And this is what jumped out to me. They said, we just felt, or I just felt, Rhett would say, or Link would say, so guilty as I prayed. I just felt so guilty before God with my questions and my complaints and my doubts or my fears uh, about my faith. And so they would feel this need to, to, to tell God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this is where I'm at in my faith. This is where I'm at in my journey, that I've got these questions, I've got these doubts, um, that I'm just not, I don't feel solid, right? And this jumped out to me because I realized you seem to view God as a God who can't be bothered with your weakness. He can't be bothered with your questions or your complaints or your doubts. Your view of God, this is what I'm thinking, your view of God that you have abandoned is this view of God who loves conditionally. I love you insofar as you are at a certain place of being solid in your faith. 
I love you insofar as you have a strong faith and no questions and no doubts and no complaints and nothing you're wondering about. I realized that as they talked about their prayer and their guilt before God and their apologies to God for their questions, it seems like that's your view of God. And it makes me think, if I had a view of God like that, I will love you if you are at a certain place in your sanctification journey. Perhaps I would run too. Perhaps I would abandon that faith too. But Psalm 13 this morning, I hope we will see clearly, says that if that's how you think about God, if that's what you think God is like, I think Psalm 13 says, good news, you're wrong. Good news, you're wrong. So if you would, stand with me and let's read Psalm 13 together. This is a shorter psalm. We'll be able to read the whole thing together. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. If you look at Psalm 13, we usually start our prayers in verse 3. We usually start in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, this is where we usually start our prayers. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Not a bad place to start at all, but that's usually primarily where we start. O Lord, we ask you for this. O Lord, I pray for this. God, will you please? But not the psalmist, not here, not in Psalm 13. This prayer starts differently, as you saw, than maybe any prayer you've ever started. Maybe uh, any prayer you have ever prayed. Look at verse 1 again. This is how it starts. How long, O Lord? I love how this starts because there's no explanation in that first utterance. There's no explanation of what the psalmist is going through or what he is feeling. It's just how long. Like, almost like a married couple that has this building conflict and tension, and they're not talking about it, and then finally one of them just goes, how long? How long are we going to do this? You know, you and I don't know how long what, but they know. It's almost like the psalmist knows, God knows, I know he knows. He knows, I know, so God, how long? How long is this going to go on? How long are we going to do this? It's like he maybe finally got a minute to breathe and focus on a prayer and and what comes out. Couldn't it be more authentic? Couldn't it be more raw and real? God, how long? And whatever is going on in the psalmist's life, it implies that he is being pushed to the brink. He's asking a time question. How long? That's the kind of question we ask when we feel I'm being pushed to the brink. It's almost over for me. It's almost done. I'm almost at the finish line. And it's not a good finish line. So God, how long? Or is this it? He begins to go into detail in the rest of verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The psalmist here feels forgotten by God. 
Now, a little bit of context. In the Old Testament, the Bible will talk about God forgetting or God remembering. This is not a uh, memory issue for God. When the Old Testament talks about God remembering, the opposite of forgetting, um, it's usually talking about God sees the plight of his people or sees the plight of one of his uh, children and he remembers them or he remembers his promises to them. And what that means is he's going to act. For God to remember his kids, his children, his people is for God to say, I love you and I'm going to act on your behalf and I'm going to rescue you. For the psalmist to feel forgotten is to feel and sense like God sees his plight, but has no care or love to act. He knows it. It's not, he's not saying you have forgotten me like you don't know what I'm going through. You know how long, O oh Lord. You know what's going on. Have you forgotten me? How long will you forget me? How long will you see my plight and not act? Not jump in not rescue. That's how he feels. It is easy for us to believe that God knows the hardship and the suffering and the difficulties we are going through. That's fairly easy to believe. It's hard to believe that he sees it and he's going to intervene and act on our behalf. Sure, maybe he'll act on the behalf of others. Sure, he'll rescue Moses. It's Moses. Sure, he'll rescue David. It's David. But me, little old me, it's hard to believe that. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? Have you ever felt like God knows exactly what's going on and he won't do anything? He won't answer. He won't lift a finger. If you have ever felt that way about God, one of the authors of the Bible has too. So you're in good company. He continues on, the psalmist continues on, verse one, continuing, how long will you hide your face from me? What does that mean? What does it mean for God to hide his face? Because the Bible will talk about God shining his face on you or hiding his face. I think Deuteronomy 31, 17 gives us a good picture of it. Just listen to this as I read it. God says, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. Don't worry about the context of that or, or why God is saying that in Deuteronomy just understand this, for God to hide his face is not this neutral thing. Oh, I just can't see God's face. No, for God to hide his face is connected to his anger. It's connected to God giving someone over to their enemies or giving them over to their sin. It's connected to his anger. It's connected to things like being forsaken by God. So the psalmist here is saying, David is here saying, how long will you be angry with me? How long will I feel like you have abandoned me and forsaken me? The opposite would be number six, what we say in our benediction at the end of our service a lot of times. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This almost feels the complete opposite. If he were sitting here today and here's that benediction, he would go, I can't, I don't feel that at all the countenance, the smile of God on me. I feel the anger of God. I feel like he's forsaken me and handed me over to be devoured. I had a seminary professor, uh, Dr. Michael Allen, and he would often say that the point of the Bible is life with God. The point of life in your existence is to have life with God. 
The psalmist is here saying, I feel the complete opposite of the point of the Bible and the point of all of life. I feel like I have no life with God. He has forsaken me. That's how he feels. It's easy to believe that God loves other people. It's easy to believe that he smiles on other people. It's hard to believe that he's smiling on us, isn't it? It's hard to believe that. It's hard to walk in that confidence and know that. So have you ever felt like, I just feel like God is displeased with me, angry with me, abandoned me, forsaken me, and I don't know how long this is going to last. If you've ever felt that way, one of the authors of the Bible has too. He continues on in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The psalmist here has only himself to consult. That's how he feels. I'm, I'm taking counsel in my own soul. Sorrow and depression from sunrise to sunset, utterly alone. Now, you and I both know that loneliness hurts. Loneliness hurts in a specific unique kind of way, but this is a loneliness connected to God. Um, Sometimes I wonder uh, what life would be like if I had everything, and I mean everything, Um, the, the best of marriages, the best of kids, the best house, all the money, the yacht, bench press as much as I want, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is. I have everything. Everything is perfect. The good life, you know? And I sometimes wonder, what if I had all of that, but I didn't have God? Not that he didn't exist, but he exists, and he has a relationship with people, but not me, forever. I have everything. I have everything I could ever want, one exception, I don't have life with God. Why do I wonder these things? I'm not entirely sure. But I have wondered, what would that be like? You know, I could have everything. I just don't have God. And when I really think about that, and when I really let that sink into my mind and heart, um, it feels like hell. That feels like a kind of hell. I have everything. I mean, nothing to complain about, but I don't have life with God. That feels like a certain kind of hell. Charles Spurgeon said, God's temporary absence, commenting on this psalm, God's temporary absence brings his people into the very suburbs of hell. When you feel like, God, you are not with me, you have forsaken me, I don't have you, I don't feel life with you, you're feeling like this, it's like hell. You feel the absence of God's presence. Have you ever longed? Have you ever longed? Do you long this morning just to know God's gracious, loving presence? But you don't. And have you ever longed to feel it, to know it, to sense it? But you don't. In fact, you feel the opposite. One of the authors of the Bible has felt that way too. That kind of hell. He continues on, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Look at the pattern of this psalm. How long, how long, how long, God, how long? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? You know, you and I sometimes can't really relate with David when he talks about like people are chasing me and throwing spears at me. And we're like, okay, I don't really super relate to that. Um, But how long, God, will this sin get the better of me? 
how long will I be lied about? How long will my, my reputation be tarnished with falsehood? How long am I going to struggle financially? How long will these people continue to try to hurt me and hurt my kids and hurt my family? How long, God, is this going to happen? How long am I going to be under assault in this way? Perhaps the psalmist even feels almost mistreated. Like, God, I have repented of my sin and I believe in you and my enemies don't believe in you. How is it that they have the good life and I don't? You ever thought that? I mean, how is it, I'm a believer. How is it that I'm not ahead in life? How is it that those who deny you and hate you, how are they ahead? How are they seeming to prevail over me? That's how the psalmist feels. Perhaps perhaps he feels like a divine unfairness, almost like he's maybe even being mistreated. If you've ever felt that way, one of the authors of the Bible has felt that way as well. And in all of this, in all of this pain, being forgotten, forsaken, God's angry with me, the question again is how long, God, is this forever? Is this it for me? Is this going to be forever? It's one thing to be in pain, but know it's going to end. And it's a whole different thing to be in pain and go, this this might be it. This is my new normal forever. And that's how he feels. He's being pushed to the brink. Is this it? Are we done? Is this hell I am feeling eternal? The psalmist knows that he's hopeless if God doesn't act. That's why he says in this psalm, God, you need to act lest I sleep the sleep of death. And my enemies say, finally, I have prevailed over him. My my foes rejoice over me. If you don't act, I'm going to die. This psalm is in the Bible because it's not uncommon for us, for Christians, to feel forgotten by God, not seen by God, forsaken by God, alone without God, maybe even mistreated by God. And worse, we can feel like that's our eternal future. That's it. It's not going to get better. This is just where it's at. And we're going to go to our grave feeling this way. It's not uncommon. That's why this psalm is in the Bible. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. The psalmist has been praying this whole time. When I was preparing this sermon, when I got to verse 3, I put a note in my notes, and it said something like, the psalmist begins to pray. And right as I wrote it, I realized he's been praying this whole time. This, This is his prayer. He has been praying this whole time. How often are we this honest? I think it's kind of rare. I think... We, like Rhett and Link and many others, feel like it's inappropriate in some form or fashion. Like, I shouldn't be thinking this. I shouldn't be feeling this. And so I'm going to deal with it on my own, and then I'll come to God in prayer, and I'm going to start in verse 3. God, please answer me. You know, I'll deal with all that kind of raw, rough stuff on my own, and then I'll come to God with a nice, appropriate, clean, respectful prayer. But let me, let me ask this question. How inappropriate of us is it to bring our fears and our doubts about God to anyone or anything but God? I mean, we only have two options. We only have two options. Bring all of our doubts, all of our complaints, all of our fears to God or to someone or something else. Where else would we go? 
Where else would the psalmist go? But God. So he goes to God, and after he's brutally honest, he makes this request. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes. To have the light of your eyes go out here, the psalmist is saying simply, I'm going to die. I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. And so he here now turns to say, God, give me life. I am approaching death. Give me life. I don't know if you feel the tension here, but I do, because up to verse 3, the psalmist has been crying out that God has forgotten him and forsaken him, and then he makes a direct request of God. I mean, where is the hope? Where's the confidence for him in verse 3 to turn and say, now God, answer me? I mean, do you see that tension? It's, it's like the psalmist said, God doesn't hear me. And then he turns to say, God, hear me. Right? It's like, that's my very problem, is I feel forsaken. But now in verse 3, I'm going to turn to say, hear me, consider me, answer me, respond to me. Even though my very problem is I feel you have turned your back on me. And that's the very thing you're not going to do. So where is the confidence? Where is the hope for the psalmist to go from verses 1 and 2 to verse 3? Look at verse 5. He says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the same prayer, in the same psalm, you have this. He has dealt bountifully with me. And you have, will you forget me forever? How is that possible? How is that possible? It's possible. I think there's a couple of things that can be said here, but what we'll say this morning, it's possible because he's being honest with God. It's simple, but it's hard to do, isn't it, in prayer? It's possible because he is being honest. This psalm is saying, Don't stuff your pain before God. Don't stuff that complaint. Don't try to deal with that on your own, but then go to God and start in verse 3. Oh God, consider me, answer me. It's possible because he's being honest. The psalmist is being honest. He's telling the truth. This psalm is kind of like God saying, it hurts, doesn't it? You're hurting, aren't you? You're in pain, aren't you? That question about me is killing you, isn't it? That feeling you have that that I've abandoned you, it's crushing you, isn't it? Bring that to me. Talk to me about it. Bring that complaint, bring that fear, bring that doubt to me. Live the life of faith, in other words. Cling to faith. You only have two options. Cling to faith and bring it to God or abandon faith and take it somewhere else. Take it somewhere else that has no answer, that has no rescue for you. Personally, I'd prefer to go to the one who has dealt bountifully with me. That's where I would rather go. The psalmist is able to be honest and believe the rock-solid truth. He trusts the steadfast love of God. As Mark Roberts, an elder, said a couple weeks ago, the staying love of God, the love that stays, whether I feel it or not. He knows that God has dealt bountifully with him. He knows that. He believes in him. And so he returns his mind and his heart in all of the pain 
to God, you have a staying love. God, you have been gracious to me. God, you have dealt bountifully with me. That's true, regardless of how I feel in this moment. But I know this begs the question. I know this begs the question, how has God dealt bountifully with you? How can you say that? I mean, we could read the Bible and see how David says that. How can you say that with confidence and in truth? God has dealt bountifully with me. He has shown me steadfast love. Here's how. This psalm, in a sense, would become the psalm of Jesus in so many ways. This psalm would become Jesus' own psalm because on the cross, Jesus would be forgotten by God himself. On the cross, Jesus would know that he is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would, in a sense, see the face of God for the first time ever turn from him. He would have only his soul on the cross to take counsel in. He would feel deep sorrow, deep sorrow and pain as his bones and his body and his soul was crushed. His enemies would exalt over him to the point of just mocking him on the cross. Did they not? Just this sense of superiority, making fun of Jesus, mocking him. If God loved you, you could get off this cross, but you can't can you? The difference with Jesus on the cross and this psalm, though, in David here is that Jesus' suffering would not stop short of death. He would sleep the sleep of death. His eyes would be darkened. His enemies would, for a time, prevail over him, and the enemy of death would, for a time, completely prevail over him. God has shown perfect ultimate, steadfast, bountiful love to you and me. Love so deep and so strong that he would send Jesus to experience real forsakenness, real displeasure from the Father, real anger from the Father, real abandonment from the Father, not for his sin, but for your sin and for my sin. The eyes of Jesus went dark for you. And he slept the sleep of death for you, that you might only know, whether you feel it this morning or not, that you would only know the steadfast love and pleasure of God for you, the face of God shining on you, the smile of God on you because of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection for you. Whether you feel it or not, you could know it by faith. I don't feel it, but I know if Jesus would go to the cross, live, die, and rise for me, and I'm clinging to him, the smile of God is ultimately on me, and it always will be. The psalmist clung in faith to God's grace, and this faith is what ultimately dominated his reality. It dominated and it ultimately controlled his reality. And I know that because of the end of verse 5 when he says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. I mean, what a beautiful picture of where the psalm starts and then where it ends. Another psalm says it really well. Morning may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy wins. 
joy dominates. And joy wins because grace wins. Because grace dominates. Because steadfast love stays. And it wins out and it gets the last word. So let me give you good news this morning. If you feel a little bit like this psalmist here, because of Jesus and through faith in Jesus, your heart will sing. Your heart will and can rejoice because he has loved you with a steadfast love and he has, he has been bountiful with you. Amen.